Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Good morning. It's good to be here. Good to see everybody today. I see some visitors here and just always like to tell visitors that I'm a guest preacher. I'm an elder who's preaching one time. So if, if you're here and, and you don't like the sermon, give us another shot when our, our real preacher is up here. Don't judge what you hear, our church, by what you hear today. So, um, and if you're a member here, you're stuck. The doors are locked. You can't get out. All right. Um, I started preparing for this sermon, or thinking about it, in mid-July, Justin said he's going to be gone for a, a day uh, to take care of some business with his mother and asked the elders if they, one of us wanted to preach, and I uh, volunteered. I seemed like I had the most time uh, to prepare, and uh, I had a bunch of ideas swimming around in my head of what I was going to preach on, what topics, and starting to narrow those things down to, to one or two, and I was going to begin studying, and I thought, well, you know, there's a... Um, uh, uh, Justin... Last, last sermon last week sort of ended the series on marriage, and he's going to be beginning another series next week. So I thought, well, maybe there is, is this fan picking up the, I hear some static. Is the fan picking that up? Okay, all right. And uh, I thought, well, maybe Justin has something that he'd like me to preach to sort of wrap up that series on, on marriage and anthropology. And uh, he said, yeah, Jeff, and immediately without thinking, he said, how about singleness? I thought, singleness. And immediately my, my preaching enthusiasm meter just shot straight up. And I thought, singleness, what, what a brilliant idea. What a great way to end uh, the subject or the topic of marriage and anthropology. And then I started thinking, okay, what am I going to preach? Where am I going to go? And uh, the only place I could think of that dealt with singleness was 1 Corinthians 7. And I, I did not want to preach 1 Corinthians 7. It is a very long passage, long chapter. It's a very difficult chapter. The, the, the Greek and, and the, the constructions are very hard. There's things in there that are very hard to understand and even harder to preach. Though I, I did not want to go and, and preach 1 Corinthians 7. So I, 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 thought, I went through all my books on my library shelves. Not a single book on singleness. So I'm thinking, okay, let me go to Amazon. I went to Amazon. I looked up singleness, Christian singleness. Two books came up that looked like they were decent, and they were very small books. One was uh, probably smaller than this right here, and about 95 pages with one-inch margins and big block quotes and pages between the chapters. It wasn't going to be enough. And then I got another book that looked pretty good, but it was something like uh, Seven Myths About Singleness, where yeah, I could get up here and give seven myths about singleness and fill my sermon up with that, but that, I don't think that would be edifying. So uh, I, I started panicking. And my, my preaching enthusiasm meter flatlined, and I said, singleness. What a stupid topic to preach on. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, so what I did, I, I got my commentaries out. I, I ordered the books, and uh, my Kindle broke, so I couldn't look at the books. And uh, I, I just got my commentaries out and, and started digging into 1 Corinthians 7 and got to the end of it and had a sermon and didn't even need to touch the books. There's stuff. I think I read two pages of the first one and maybe one chapter on the second one. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 7 today. And again, it is a difficult passage. There there's some things I have to say that I wish I didn't have to say because they're hard things to say and hard things to explain. But let's, let's take a look 
and, and see what the Lord says. Let me start with a, a sort of an illustration or a scenario. Let, let's say that there is a, uh, in our day, there, there's a great, powerful preacher. O- almost imagine a uh, post-apostolic ministry or an apostolic ministry. It's close as we can have uh, to in a post-apostolic age. He's ministered all over the world. Uh, he's planted churches throughout the world. He's a, a combination of a, uh, a George Whitfield, a, a Charles Spurgeon, a, a John Piper, and John MacArthur, all balled up into one, just a great, powerful man who's done great works for the Lord. And to add to that, he's also written the most popular book on marriage. This man has taken the gospel principles that he understands, that he's lived, that he's preached, and applied them uh, to marriage in a book that has profoundly affected people's lives. Uh, Hundreds, thousands of marriages have been saved through this man applying the principles of the gospel to your marriage, to marriages. And every biblical counselor has this book on his shelf. It's dog-eared, it's underlined and highlighted, it's indispensable. And let's say this man is invited to our conference. We're able to somehow secure this man, our little church. And in our November uh, conference or retreat, he's speaking to us for four days. And uh, you can imagine the excitement having this man, this almost apostolic man, uh, minister, uh, coming and addressing our our little church, our little retreat, the, the enthusiasm that would be there. And he comes, and Justin introduces him. And... Mr. So-and-so, a little bit of background like we always do when we introduce somebody, and a man gets up to speak. And uh, he starts this way. He says, you know, you may have noticed that my, my introduction by, by your pastor, Justin, was relatively short, right? Usually these introductions go on. He says, well, the reason why is because I'm a single man. I'm 65 years old and single, never married. And, of course, when you're in that state, there's no, uh, there's no need to go through who my wife is, how long we've been married, how many kids we have, how many grandchildren we have, how many great-grandchildren. All that is just unnecessary when you're single like me. And uh, you think, a single man that, that wrote a book on marriage that, that has saved thousands of marriages? How, how could that be? And then you, you realize, well, you know, Paul was unmarried. Some of the most profound stuff we have written about marriage was penned by the Apostle Paul, a single man. Uh, Jesus himself, who is the source of Paul's teaching, was also a single man. See, I, I can understand it. I'm surprised. You know, when I think of the great preachers uh, of today, uh, you know, MacArthur, Lawson, uh, Piper, I, many of these men, I don't know if they're married. I assume that they are, and if they said they weren't, I would be surprised. So you can imagine there's a reason for the surprise here. But then he goes on, he says something like this, he says, you know, and before I begin, I just want to say something. He says, I wish all of you could be like me, that all of you could be single, just like I am. Now that that would be a little bit of a shock for a man to get up on a marriage seminar and, and say that I wish everybody here was single like me. And you can imagine Mark Ritchie kind of leaning over to see what Dan's response is, and Dan's leaning over to see what Justin's thinking, what he, his response. So it would be sort of a, a, a shock to hear that. And, and then he, he doesn't stop there. Uh, he, he continues. He says, and the reason I wish that you were single is because you who are married uh, have to spend too much time on worldly things, like your marriage and your children. That's why it's better to be like me, to be single. The husband must be concerned about worldly things, how to please his wife, and the wife must be concerned about worldly things like how to please her husband. In other words, your interests are divided between the things of the kingdom and the things of this world. 
However, uh, for a, a per single person like me, uh, I don't have to be concerned about those things. I can focus solely on the things of the Lord and not worldly things like caring for a spouse. And although Paul doesn't say it, it certainly is implied with the caring of children. Now, if you want to be married, that's fine. That's good. You're not sitting by being married. But as for me, I think it's better to be single. And I think that would be best for all of you as well who aren't married. Now, a lot of us would, would be rather shocked and taken aback by that, wouldn't we? That would be pushing it a little bit too far. But yet we're going to find that that's exactly what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 7, which I hope to show you and, and explain why he's saying it and what he's saying and why he's saying it. So what we're going to do is it's going to be sort of a, a, a Sunday schoolish type teaching where we simply go through, uh, look at some of the important points. We're going to skip a lot because a lot of it just doesn't matter to us. We'll, we'll uh, skip some, we'll summarize some, and other parts we'll dig deep down into to see what Paul says and why he's actually saying that and how that applies to our marriages, how that applies to our as a church, and how that applies specifically to you who are single. Now, uh, concerning, he starts out this way. Um, actually, he goes back to uh, uh, yeah, verse 1. And get, open your Bible there, because we're going to be in, in and out. So uh, open your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 7. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man to have sexual, rela is, is good for a man to have sexual relationships with a woman. Now, the first phrase here is kind of important, concerning the matters about which you wrote. What appears to have happened here is that the, uh, the Corinthians had written Paul a letter with a whole bunch of questions. And Paul now, in 1 Corinthians 7, is going to go through and answer those questions. And it appears that a lot of them have to deal with marriage. Uh, what about singleness? Uh, what about if you're betrothed? What about virgins? Uh, what about married people? What about if you're married to an unbeliever, somebody outside of the covenant? What do we do in these situations, Paul? And Paul is basically, in 1 Corinthians 7, going through and explaining these things one after another to the people of Corinth. So it's the subject of marriage, but a broad range of issues uh, regarding marriage. And that's how it starts. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, I'm going to answer those questions that you sent me in your last letter. And then he says, well, we're not, again, we're not going to focus on the first four verses. Basically, he says there that uh, it's better to get married uh, than to burn. You're better off getting married and having uncontrolled uh, physical appetites, and we satisfy those God-given appetites by marriage. And if that's your situation, then it's better to get married. There are times where you can separate uh, for times of prayer, but always come back together so that those desires are satisfied. And then in verse 6, he says this, Now, as a concession, not a command, I say. Now, this is the first sort of uh, stumbling block in this passage that we have to understand to grasp what Paul means. The question is, what is this concession that he's speaking of? And a concession, again, is an agreement. Um, it's the idea of a, uh, something that we maybe are disagreeing upon, but we're going to reluctantly agree to agree on it. So it's what we would call a, a concession. You, we're, we're, you're here, I'm here, we're going to come here together and have a concession about this, this discussion or this disagreement. Uh, the question is, what is the concession? Is it what Paul has said before, or is it what he's saying in the next passages? Because if we think it's the next passages, then what Paul is saying is all this teaching about singleness and about marriage, it's just sort of a, a compromise. And you can take it or leave it. 
And if it means what's coming before, then that is the concession. That is something that we could maybe take or leave. But what comes after that is still a command, still uh, binding upon the people of God. And when you look at what, what the church has taught about this, when you look at the Greek, and I'm not going to bore you with the Greek, uh, the overwhelming consensus, that's with liberal scholars, conservative scholars, if you go all the way back uh, uh, to people like Cyprian, all the way back to the first couple centuries of the church, where we have uh, their comments on this passage, all through the medieval times and Reformation, the consensus is Paul is speaking of what has come before. So the consensus, and we don't need to get into what it is exactly, there are a bunch of reasons for that, or options for that, but it's what he said before, so we can leave it there and come forward into these passages knowing that what Paul says now is not a concession, what he said previously was. So that, that's important to what we're saying, because it means we just can't be say, well, you know, that's Paul's opinion, it's a compromise he made, so therefore we can just in, in, interpret this any way we want to. We can't do that. This is binding upon us. He says this in verse 8 now. Um, well, first of all, let me back up a little bit. Um, Again, he says that, uh, is, there's a passage here. So now as a concession, not as a command, I, and again, we stop there, I say this. Again, this goes back. Verse 7, I wish, and this should really be the start of a new paragraph in our Bibles, but it's not. I wish that all of you were as myself, but each has his own gift from God, one, one of one kind and one of another. So that this singleness that Paul is speaking of, and we'll see more of this later, it's not just a, a choice to be single. That I want to be single because I don't want to get muddled up in all the complications of marriage. Or I want to, I've got a bucket list that I want to fulfill. Or I've got a, a golf that I don't want to have to give up. No, Paul's saying here is this is a gift that people have. And for those who have that gift, it is better to remain single. It's better not to marry. You, you can get married, he's going to say, but it's better to stay unmarried. And he says to this, the unmarried man, this is verse uh, Eight, to the unmarried man and the widow, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but they cannot, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with patch. Again, Paul is repeating what he said above, that it's better to get married as opposed to burn with passion and be, to temp be tempted by these physical desires. And again, he's addressing different groups of people uh, in different states of marriage. First, he deals with unmarried widows. He allows those who are unmarried or widowed to get married is not forbidden. It's fine. God will accept that. But he says that those who are unmarried, again, it is better that to stay single unless you cannot stay single. Uh, verse 10 through 16, he deals with various topics regarding marriage and divorce. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here. Uh, he deals, again, with those who are married, those who are divorced. Uh, what about if you're married to an unbeliever? And we may not think this is important, but this was a very important question in the first century. In ancient Israel, what happened if an Israelite man married a person outside a covenant, an Edomite or a Hittite? What happened? Well, he had cast that person out. He had to send them away. There's an example, I believe it's Nehemiah 8 or 9, where the, the men of Israel married foreign women and had children with them. And what does Nehemiah tell them to do? Get rid of them. Put them away and marry Israelite women. Kind of a radical thing, but the, they saw them as outside of the covenant and therefore away from the blessings of God and marrying them was not an option. Now, uh, what happens in the new covenant? 
where you have two Jews, both are under the old covenant. One of them becomes a believer. Now they're members of the new covenant where the husband is not. What do you do? Do you send a husband away like they did in ancient Israel? And Paul says, no, no, no. The, the husband, or this unbelieving spouse is made holy by the holiness of this believing spouse. Well, what about children? Do we send our children away? He says, no, 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 we don't send our children away. The, the holiness of the believing spouse and unbelieving spouse is transferred to the children so they are holy as well. This is not a, a passage about infant baptism. It's a passage about what do we do when two people are together and one of them is a member of the covenant and one of them is not. Paul says the Old Testament principles don't apply here. God sees that marriage as legitimate and he sees any offspring from that marriage as legitimate as well. Again, not pertinent to our discussion, but just an explanation of how important this would have been uh, to ancient Israel or to the the Jews of the first century. he says, continues in verse 17, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So Paul is not making something up. Uh, he's not uh, punishing the Corinthians. This is something that is a rule for him in all churches. And he says this, was anyone at the time of his calling circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. For each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Where Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But he says if you want to gain your freedom and the opportunity presents itself, then certainly take your freedom. For who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called as is a bondservant of Christ. Where you were bought with a price, do not become a bondservant of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each of you was called, there remain with God. So he exhorts them uh, to live as you were called, using two illustrations, uh, circumcision and slavery, bondservant. Now, we know that these things are optional, that you can choose to be these things or not be. Uh, for example, Timothy. Uh, Paul had him circumcised probably for the benefit of his ministry to the Jews. The Jews would take a a circumcised man much more seriously than an uncircumcised man. So to get the ear of the Jews, he had Timothy become circumcised. So you're, you're free to do these things, but you're not bound to do them. You're not commanded to do them. And the, the point, one commentator says here, is that bloom where you are planted. There's no need to change to improve yourself in relation to God. God does not reckon one condition better than another in terms of serving him. What Paul's doing here is, in a sense, taking the burden of this change off of our shoulders and putting it upon God's. Uh, your mother and grandmother may impatiently be tapping their foot, waiting for you to find the right man. But God is not doing that. Uh, at, at the punch bowl of every Christmas, you may be nagged by your uh, Aunt Ruthie and Uncle Bertie about getting married. But God is not nagging you about that. Whatever situation you're in, stay there. God is pleased with whatever work that you do. If you think I'm single and I really can't please God until I'm married, no, that's not the case. If you're married and think I really can't please God unless I'm single, no, God is pleased where you are right now. And in a sense, he's lifted this burden of change off our shoulders, whether single or married, and put it upon himself. Our identity is not in our status of being singled or married. 
Rather, it's, as he states in the beginning of the epistle in, I think it's 1 Corinthians 30, uh, what's important is being in Christ. Our identity is in him. And that is what God looks at, not the state that we are in. He says, but this is his doing. You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is what matters to God. And that's what Paul is saying here. Don't worry about it. Stay as you are. God will be pleased and content with the work that you do in that position. Now, the next section is, is the longest and the most difficult. It, it goes from, uh, I think, 25 to uh, 33 or 34. And it's got a lot of difficult things that, that we need to work through. Um, and Paul here is basically explaining, uh, expounding upon what he has already said. I'll go ahead and read the passage, and then we will uh, look at it. I don't usually like to read long sections of Scripture at one time, but we'll go ahead and, and do this. Um, Again, verse 24, again, he concludes, brethren, each one of you is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Verse 25, he says, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but give you an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think that it is good in view of the present distress, and it is good for a man to remain as he is. Now, one of the questions here is, what does this present distress mean? Paul seems to be bounding what he says uh, or conditioning it upon this present distress. It's going to be important we look at what this word means. But we'll see as he, as he moves on, he uses other terms uh, to sort of uh, highlight or fill in what this sort of vague term present distress means. But he says, are you bound to a wife? Uh, do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, uh, she has not sinned. Yet each of you will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying that I'm trying to spare you. Now, just what we find as we as we go through here, again, he begins the word with uh, th this is what this means, brother. Um, actually, let me go back a little bit to verse 25. Uh, the reason why it's interesting here is that, uh, again, this idea of present distress, one commentator summarized and says, in light of the troubles that are, you are already experiencing, who needs the additional burden of marriage as well? And the question is, what does this present crisis or present distress mean? Many people think that it's simply some temporary a set of events that, that are occurring in Corinthian and in, in Corinth that will pass and eventually things will go back to normal. Uh, so is it something temporary uh, that's going to disappear and we can go back to emphasizing marriage and not highlighting the idea of singleness? Okay, as we read the section, again, we see these other words that Paul uses to give insight into what this means. As we continue, he, he says this. Uh, the, to add to this idea of present, he stressed, he continues in verse 29, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and th those who weep as they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those... Of us, and, and as those of us who use the world as though they did not, making full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. There's other, the other phrases here are the present distress, the time has been shortened, and the form of this world is passing away. All those ideas uh, have meaning together to tell us what Paul is actually talking about. Is it a, a, a temporary disturbance in Corneth at the time that will pass, or is he describing something more significant and something more long-lasting. I think he's describing something that is going to last longer, not just a temporary uh, distress. Uh, and some people do, do teach this, that they're very few, but uh, that there's this crisis that's going to happen and things will get back to normal. Um, 
Now, the, the reason why is that these ideas here of, of the, the question is, when does this occur? How long does it last? And what Paul, I think, is doing here is he's describing the character of, of the Messianic age in which we live. Now, what I mean by that, the Messianic age is simply the time from the resurrection to the return of Christ. Paul believes that is going to be a, a very stressful, a very uh, a hard time for the church to live in. There's going to be great suffering. And so this suffering, this distress is going to last from the cross or the resurrection all the way up until the return of Christ. So it's not a, a temporary thing that's going to happen and then ultimately pass away. He's describing what we would call the whole character of the messianic age. It'll be a time of upheaval, a time of distress. And anybody who's studied history knows that that is exactly what has happened from the time of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, until this very day, and is going to continue to happen until Christ comes. And just because we live in a, a little pocket of history where things are going well for the church in one part of the world doesn't mean it's going well everywhere else, doesn't mean it's been well before or will be after. Think of the, the brethren in China. I'm sure they take to heart what Paul says and don't try to make excuses, saying, well, he's only talking about a short period of time. No, their, their lives are, are difficult. Uh, think of Christians in Iran or Iraq and, and how they're suffering. Uh, they certainly would understand what Paul's saying here as this being a time of distress and with no sign uh, of these, these evil men being removed, they expect that to continue. Uh, a talk to the, uh, I knew a number of people that went to Cuba, a, a friend of ours at a, a church we went to, used to go there and minister. And a lot of them have that same attitude. Yeah, we're in a, a stressful time, but this is what we expect. This is what we expect in this age. So there will be difficult times that make marriage, make the things uh, of marriage, the difficulties, uh, elevate them to where they can interfere with a person's service of the Lord. In verse 20, uh, 27 through 31, there are, are four of these as-ifs. It's, it's kind of odd passage here, but he says this. Look, uh, I'm summarizing. If you're married... Uh, live as if you were not married. Uh, if you weep, live as if you do not weep. If you rejoice, then live as if you don't rejoice. If you buy, then live as if you have nothing. It's sort of a summary of what Paul is saying here. Now, now why? Well, he closes the final verse here with the idea of the form of this world is passing away. It's going to be gone. Now, what does he mean by form? Well, it's probably just the, the structures, uh, the social, the moral, the economic uh, things that support the world that we live in. Paul is saying that they're going to be gone. Uh, one commentator translates it this way. He says, the external structure of the world that we are living in is slipping away. And therefore, we, we pretend we live as if these things are simply temporary. And the difficulty is what does Paul include in that? Marriage. Marriage is a part of those structures that is one day going to be going away. So Paul is telling us, live in a sense as if we were not married, if we didn't weep, if we didn't, we didn't rejoice, and if we didn't buy or uh, involve ourselves in the basic commerce. Now, he's not saying here, if you're married, uh, get divorced, become celibate. He's not saying if you purchase things, sell everything you have and go live on a street with nothing to your name, not even the clothes in your back. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying here is live in a sense as if these things were temporary. Is if things like marriage, weeping, rejoices, the basic necessities of life as if they were simply temporary, that they could be taken away at any time. 
and we would still have to be content. One writer says this, that possess them, but do not let them possess you. Do not live as if they, you're, they are yours to keep. Now, I want to give a couple of examples here because I want to make sure we understand this and I'm not being misunderstood. Let me give a, a, two contrasting examples. A, a friend of mine, or actually a friend of my brother's, they were, they were like I think 12 or 13, and he was a good friend. He used to come over and spend the night at our house, and he, he had no, no brothers. He had like five or six sisters, so he liked the idea of a, a big brother, and I used to you know, wrestle with him and my brother and beat him up, you know, in a nice, gentle, brotherly way. But he, he just liked being around our house with, a, with another brother. And uh, he was about maybe, I think, 14, and he got in an accident and died. Uh, a car collision. Sister was driving. Uh, sister told him to buckle the seatbelt. Uh, he didn't, and went over a hill in Connecticut. There's lots of hills with turns. Went over a hill. The sun hit her eyes, and she went head on into another car. And uh, the young man was killed. Sister survived without a scratch. If he had his seatbelt on, if he listened to his sister, uh, he'd have been alive. And uh, the father's life w was just wrapped around this child. Everything this man did was for this child. Uh, his wife was ignored, his daughters were ignored, everything was focused on him. And this was a, a religious man, a man who uh, actually wanted to go into become a Catholic priest but decided not to. And when his son died, it just it destroyed him, completely destroyed this man. Uh, I'd see him a couple times after this and there was no, uh, no joy, uh, just a despondency that you could see uh, behind him and just the way that he walked. And this was years after this occurred. And uh, I moved away from Connecticut, didn't, hadn't seen him in years, probably 30 years. And about a year or so ago, my dad said, hey, you know, Mr. Mr. Pavin. I said, yeah. He said, you know, he died. And I said, wow, that's a shame, Dad. I said, and my dad understood the whole thing about his son. I said, did he ever get over Chris, Dad? Did he ever recover from that? And not, not that you recover from it, but was he ever able to go on with his life? And my dad said, no, Jeff. He, he basically moved into his basement, uh, put up a, a bunch of life-size pictures of his son, and just stayed there the whole time. Neglected his wife, neglected his daughters, just put himself in that cave and lived there until he died. And uh, that's an example uh, of something like a child but Paul wants us to have the attitude where uh, if they're taken away, that we'll still press on. We'll still live knowing that it, it was temporary. They weren't ours to begin with. A, a contrasting example of this is a campground I worked at. Uh, there was a, a family there that I got to know that were Christians, and they lived there uh, throughout the summer. So I got to be good friends with them. And uh, they'd invite me down for, for dinner after I'd, I'd get off my shift, and I'd go down and spend time with them around the fire talking. And after a couple, couple weeks of, of doing this, getting to know them, uh, they, they told me that they had a daughter that they lost, and a, a teenage daughter. And uh, you know, we just talked about the grief that they went through. And uh, you didn't notice it. It wasn't something that they brought forth right away. But when they talked about it, you could tell there, there was still a, a wound there that, that was still healing. And, and they said, you know, Jeff, we couldn't even eat at our table for two and a half years. Every, every time we, we saw the place where she sat, we had to get up and, and go out and get to go or go sit in front of the TV. Uh, that's how hard it was. Uh, they, they used to camp. Uh, they couldn't go camping any longer because everything just brought this girl back into their lives. And uh, yet they, they spoke of it as a trial that God had 
given them. And they, they persevered and they survived. They could sit and talk about the daughter. They could talk about the joy that the husband still loved the wife. The wife still loved the husband. There was a Christian joy in their lives that you could see that they still loved their daughter. There was none of this bitterness, none of this, this absolute utter despondency. They, they, they grew and went beyond that. Again, deeply wounded still but able to function in life as humans and as Christians. There, there's a family who understood what Paul meant here, willing to, to live as if these things aren't ours, as if they could be taken away at any moment, and, and we would survive, we would persevere. Again, many, many hours we spent just around the fire talking, uh, praying and singing, and you could see the joy that these people had. Now, Paul wants us to enjoy, uh, to use and participate in these things, in these structures, again, but not to cling to them so tightly that, that we cannot let them go when the Lord takes them away. Again, Paul sees these things as very soon they're going to be taken away. Paul believed in an imminent return of Christ. He was coming soon. So any moment... And the next year, the next month, the next week, these things could be taken away from us. Not just in the return of Christ, but through some trial or through some difficulty, uh, through a car accident, through a sickness, these things could be removed. So live as if you don't possess them. Now, the hard thing here is marriage. How do we treat our marriage in that way? Well, we treat it in... in we treat it this way, is again realizing that our wives aren't ours forever. They're ours for a little while. They're ours while they are here physically with us, but God can take them away. And you ever, you ever thought about what you would do without your husband or wife? Have you ever thought about it? You ever prayed about it? And I, I do Geneva having gone through cancer. I think about it a lot. What would I do? And, and, and I trust that, that I wouldn't just fold like a cheap suit that there'd be a, a deep time of grief and sorrow and, and that the people of God would, would rally around me and encourage me and, and take me out of that despondency and that I would be able to function again, maybe even remarry again. That, that's what I plan. It, the Lord forbid if Geneva were taken from me. But what about you? What would happen if your spouse was taken? Would you have this attitude that Paul is telling us to have here? Another, again, I don't like to have long illustrations, but one more uh, just to... to to sort of put a period on what I'm trying to say here. Uh, I was preaching at uh, a DRBC, Dallas Reformed Baptist Church, where I was an elder, and it was an Easter sermon, and I was preaching on, on a phrase in Acts, I can't remember where it is, but it's in early Acts, I think Acts 2 or 3, where Peter met this little phrase that I, I'd read a million times but never really thought about, that, that Christ endured the agony of death. You know, when we think of Christ's suffering, we, we think of his, his spiritual death, you know, the, the wrath of God poured out upon him. But there's this agony of what appears to be physical death. And so I, I focused on that word you know, to show what Christ went through, how horrible death was. And not just death from cancer or death through other things, but what it was like on a cross. And I, I gave illustrations, not, not too graphic, I used a lot of euphemisms, but you know, what was it like to die of cancer? Uh, 200 years ago, before we had uh, modern um, uh, pain suppression technology. What was it like? And uh, it, it was horrible. It was terrible. Months and months of just agonizing pain that had no relief at all. And uh, just, again, illustrating this idea of, of how agonizing death is and that Christ went through that for us. 
And I thought it was helpful for us to have that perspective. Well, I got a phone call from one of the members, a very godly man, very good friend, and he was livid. And I said, brother, uh, what's wrong? And he said, well, uh, what happened is his wife's father just died, and his mother was there. And I, I mean, she, not just, she died like maybe four or five months ago. So I'm using the word just a little bit loosely here. And, and she was just devastated by what I said. And, you know, and I thought, well, maybe he died last week. Maybe he died a couple days ago. But to find out she died six months ago, and I said, well, what's the problem, Bruce? Why? Well, you know, she was on tranquilizers, and she got off the tranquilizers, and now she had to go see her psychologist, and she's back on the tranquilizers again because of your sermon. And, uh, you know, I apologize, but, but I shouldn't have. There, there's a woman here who, whose life was so wrapped up in her husband that when he passed, uh, six months later, she was still tra taking tranquilizers to deal with the problem. Okay? That's a counterexample of what Paul's talking about here. As a Christian, and she was, they claim she was a Christian, but I don't think she was from other things I heard. Again, an example uh, of somebody who just clings to a husband. And again, not saying it's not a loss, not saying that there's not grief, but after six months of psychotic medication to help you overcome that, where's the family of God? Where's the spirit of God helping that person to overcome these trials? So Paul is saying that that's not how we're to be. We're to treat these things as if they're taken away, then we are to persevere, we're to press on. They're given by God and they can be taken away by God. Uh, they will vanish. It's just a question of when. Uh, in this life or the life to come. Now, let, let me remind you again what Paul's doing here before we move on. He, he's still discussing whether a single man or woman, even a betrothed woman, uh, should get married. He's offered his judgment that marriage is fine, it's acceptable. Uh, it's not a sin if you get married. Uh, and he allows singles to choose one or the other. Um, but when you are married, uh, you, your freedom to serve the Lord is restricted. You cannot fully serve the Lord. Now, I, I know some of you are saying, uh, Jeff, well, how dare you say that about marriage? How dare you call marriage a worldly thing? This, this idea of marriage, it's the, the glory that's spoken of. God instituted marriage. Uh, he promised to bless marriage. Uh, he speaks of marriage uh, in the highest terms. He, he sheds light on it with the most glorious illustrations and images. He even uses marriage to, to reflect a mirror, to reflect the glory of Christ and his love for his church. How can you say marriage is worldly? Well, I'm, I'm simply using Paul's language here that it's worldly in a sense that it's part of this world system that's going to go away. It's going to vanish. And we need to treat our marriages like that. Yes, everything that Breck said about marriage, everything that Justin said about marriage, every other thing that Paul says about marriage is absolutely true. But Paul is saying here, treat it as if it's something of this world that God is going to remove. And, and just an example, uh, how many marriages will there be in heaven? Let me ask you kids, any of you kids under 13, how many marriages are going to be in heaven? 10, 15, a couple million? Don't be shy. If you're wrong, nobody's going to laugh at you. Nobody? How many marriages in heaven? What about this row of fine, young, single men and women here? How many? One marriage, right. And it's going to be what? The marriage of Christ and the Lamb. So Paul is right. Yeah, it's temporary. Not evil, just temporary, and it's going to be removed. So treat it that way when you choose whether or not you plan on, on getting married. Another way to tell is, is just by reading the rest of the passage. He says this, 
Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. Let me continue on. Uh, it says, but I want you to be free of, from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the world and how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests, again, his interests, the one who is married, are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of this world, that she may please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure the undistracted, your undistracted devotion to the Lord. It's pretty clear what Paul's saying here. I'm not making anything up. It's very clear. Marriage is something that we need to consider when we are single if we want to enter into it. Because if you have desires, let's say go out and be a jungle missionary or, or, or some dangerous missionary work, or you have something that you want to do that a, a wife or a husband will take away from that, and that's what you are focused on in life, then he says it's better not to marry. Not just not get married for, uh, for not being married's sake, but if there's a gift, if there's a goal, if there's a desire to serve the Lord, you need to examine that gift and that desire and see if having a wife or having a husband promotes it or limits what you are doing. Uh, again, some, ex some examples of this. Let me give some uh, clarifying uh, things here. Um, first of all, I've been very careful uh, with the words I've used here to limit them as best I can uh, to what Paul has been saying. I've not added any new words. I've kept limited myself to what he says, his vocabulary, as best I could. It's what I, I call an old sweater sermon, where uh, you have an old sweater and the little uh, uh, what called, pilts or little things come off, and somebody starts pulling them, pulling it, and pulling it, and you forget about the sweater, and next thing you know, you've got a big pile of yarn and no sweater. Well, a sermon like this, people can take one word and, and just pull it and pull it, and pull it, and forget that there was a whole sermon that that word was in that they're neglecting. So let, let, me, let me clarify some things here. First of all, uh, I'm in no way degrading marriage. As I've said, marriage is everything the Bible says it is, everything that Justin says it is, everything that Breck says it is. We're not degrading marriage. What we're doing is we're showing that singleness is simply a better state in many situations than marriages. That's all I'm saying. Now, I'm 5'11". Okay? Uh, that, that's kind of average height, a little bit big. If I stand next to Matt Darwin, I look small, but I haven't shrunk. I'm still the same size. So in comparing marriage to singleness and showing singleness's superiority over it in these situations, marriage is not changing. It's the same thing that it always has been, a God-honoring system that he set up for his glory and for his purpose. And if you are in that state, as Paul has said, and I've repeated over again, God is pleased with that. He's content with that. There's no need to worry about getting out of that state. Be content in the state that you are in. Uh, secondly, uh, I'm not uh, saying that singleness is good in and of itself. Paul says, first of all, you have to be gifted 
And I think most of the gift he's talking about there is simply the ability to restrain your physical desires. If you have that, then you are a candidate for singleness. And you need to seriously consider whether or not you should remain single. I I can think of a number of missionaries that I've known. Uh, One was a woman and and one was a man where uh, they went on, on very difficult mission. Uh, one in Japan, and one was on their way to South America to do sort of a jungle missionary work. And uh, the man in Japan had established a number of, of churches uh, that, that were doing well. He was ministering, pastoring those churches. He had no uh, elders had been risen up at the time. Uh, and suddenly he had to leave. And he had to leave because of his wife. His wife just couldn't bear the work of that ministry. Couldn't do it. Completely different culture. Uh, and he had to basically abandon that work. Now, that was his duty. What he did was right. It was honorable before God. But it's an example of how marriage and wives and children can be earthly concerns that pull us away from areas where we need to fully devote ourselves to the Lord. And he came back to the state, and he had a very fruitful ministry here. There's no shame or condemnation upon what he did. It's just an example of how a man or woman can be hindered by a marriage. Another example is Geneva's mother had a friend, a female, went to Africa to be a surgeon, got a medical degree, and spent her life living in a very small village in Africa, ministering to people with her medical uh, talents. Never married. Never married. Good example. Uh, A marriage probably would have removed her from that situation or limited what she could actually do. Keep in mind, when Paul speaks about marriage, uh, we need to consider children as well. I know people, they, people say, well, they had uh, their birth control methods, and, and they worked sometimes, but sometimes means four or five children in many cases. So, yeah, they, they did, but normally marriage meant children. It was a given that you had children. So the burden of children upon this woman, the burden of a husband, would have greatly limited the work that she felt God called her to do. She, she stayed single. And now often when we, when we hear that, we have sympathy, don't we? Oh, poor thing. But just over there working, ministering that way, no husband, nobody to come to, uh, to talk to, no romantic uh, relationship with another man. And part of our problem is is that what we see in our society, and this this bleeds over into Christians as well, as we see that the highest form of relationship, the, the greatest blessing in life is a romantic relationship with a member of the opposite sex, and that without that, we simply cannot be content. And that is not true. That is a false notion. Now, there are great blessings. I have my wife, relationship with her is one of the greatest blessings of my life, but it is not a necessity in life. And many of the arguments that we hear when we're dealing with with homosexuality in the church, uh, you know, the so-called gay Christian, when they're allowed to marry, one of the arguments is, well, you know, these these poor things, that they have no attraction to members of the opposite sex. So there's no way for them to have a romantic relationship. And they're incomplete without that. So we need to let them marry a member of the opposite sex so that they can be fulfilled and have this romantic physical relationship. And that is just not true. That is not true. Our identity, again, is in Christ. Uh, The two greatest Christians who ever lived both lived fulfilling, fruitful lives without romantic relationships. And that is Christ and the Apostle Paul. And thousands of others throughout church history have done it. So romantic relationships are one of the highest blessings in life. But they're not the only thing in life. And people can live fulfilled, satisfied lives, as hard as it may seem, 
without them. And that's one of the, the biggest hindrances that we have to singleness is people think that they need that or they're not going to be content. They're not going to be happy. So when, when, you, when you hear about a woman like this uh, living all by herself, uh, the loneliness, the sadness, no, she was probably delighted in the work that she could do. It, she probably never thought, maybe if she did, it was a fleeting thought, but being so involved in your work for the Lord that I, I doubt of something like that ever. And when you met her, she was a very happy person. She was very, very a strong woman, very sober woman, but there was a, a Christian delight and joy. You don't get the impression where here's a woman who needed a man. No, she was content, beautiful, delightful, feminine woman in the highest degree. Again, singleness here, it's a gift. It's not something that is to be done just because you don't want the burden of marriage. Uh, There's a church that I know of, uh, I really can't say where, but there's a large number of men uh, and a large number of women. Uh, The number of men are are single, they're eligible, they they make livings, they could support a wife and family, and they're, they're simply not doing that. The men are off doing other things, they're, they're golfing, they're, they're going places, but they're not marrying the women. That, that's wrong. Unless these men, and, and the women are willing, the men are just not. But unless these men have a specific uh, ministry that they are devoting themselves to that requires singleness, and unless they're, they're gifted to be in that ministry, then they need to get married. Just singleness for the sake of singleness, because your, your bucket list isn't full. Because you, you just can't give up your early morning uh, golfing game on Saturdays. That's not a reason to stay single. If there is a gift, if there is a service that you want to perform that requires singleness, that will allow you to work better being single, then that is what you do. And it's not forever. A good example of this is, is John Murray, the, uh, the great Scottish uh, Westminster professor. Uh, he was single his whole life. And he wanted to devote himself to his students and to his studies, so he remained single. He retired in his 70s and got married at the end of his life. Perfectly fine. And didn't feel compelled to be married. He wanted to devote himself to this area of the Lord, and he did, and God blessed him with a marriage, again, at the very end of his life. Again, you, you choose to be single not because it would cramp your style, not because your bucket list is not full, not because uh, you wouldn't be able to take your Caribbean vacations. No, you choose to be single because God has called you to something. And after prayerful analysis, after consulting elders and deacons and friends, you decide that being single is the best option. That is exactly what Paul is talking about here. Now, some application. Um, I want to, my application, I want to talk to four people, four groups of people. Uh, the first one is to those who are, are single and, and are considering remaining single. Have you found an area in your life that you feel you could devote yourself to the Lord to and perform it better as a single man or woman? And uh, is there maybe you want to uh, devote yourself to, uh, to counseling? And you feel you'd be better off doing that without a husband or wife. Uh, you want to devote yourself to mission. Maybe you just want to devote yourself to prayer. That, that's your great desire to just spend hours and hours in prayer. That's a gift God has given you that you certainly are legitimate to choose singleness in order to perform. So is that there? Then consider singleness to be an option. That is what Paul is saying here. Secondly, if you have considered that, and you decide that you need to get married, that you want to get married, that's fine. God accepts that. 
There's no problem with that. You're not sinning. You're not living a, a, a lesser life that is a God-honorable thing that you can do, but now you simply have to wait. What do you do in that time of waiting? Well, there's much you can do. You, you can grow. Uh, you, you can study. You can prepare yourself in many ways. You can devote yourself to prayer. Uh, pray for your wife. Pray for your husband. There, there are times in my life where I remember uh, going through struggles uh, as a single man, years before I met Geneva, the early part of my life. And uh, I attribute it to Geneva and her family praying for me during that time because they, they said they prayed for me long before I met her. They were praying for me in, in the late 70s. And I believe those prayers were effectual in, in bringing me through those difficulties and those trials. I didn't know who I was, but those prayers were effectual in my life. At that time, I really wasn't at a church or not a church that knew about me very much. So I believe that that was good. So you can pray for your wife. Uh, prepare yourself. Uh, our, our old church at Gene and I met in once a year. Uh, the pastor went through the, the deacon and the elder passages in Timothy and Titus. And that was so that we were going to they uh, announced that we we're going to have elders or we offered people to come forward with el uh, candidates for eldership or deacon. And he wanted that to be fresh in their minds so that they would know what to look for. And again, every year he repeated this and he exhorted the young men to be like this, to develop these qualities in your life now so that maybe you, you'll never be an elder. Maybe you'll never be a deacon, but you'll be a far better husband if you are these things. And he encouraged the women, the single women, to pray for their husband, whether they knew him or not, and look for a man who has these qualities. And you'll find yourself a godly Christian man who will care for you and who will love you and who will serve you. So there, there's much that we can do in the meantime uh, to prepare ourselves for marriage, uh, trusting, waiting, uh, praying, uh, seeking God, seeking his will. There's much that can be done. And... And then, and then to the church as well. Uh, one of the things that lacks in most churches, and one of the major problems with, with uh, singleness is loneliness. When I was single, the hardest thing, again, was loneliness. Uh, and a lot of times that loneliness led to struggles with physical desires. And, uh, and, and we can help in that, brethren. And one way we can help is, is that we can include single people in our fellowships. Uh, just in a... a Beginning of the year, he exhorted the elders uh, to, to be more hospitable, to show more hospitality to the congregation. And, and Geneva and I took that seriously. And we started having uh, the first Sunday of every month, uh, we have a number of families over and serve a meal. And we're trying to get a broad range of families, with people with children, older people. But, but in that group, we include single people. So they can have the joy of fellowship with a family, with other people. So they're not just left out. And many of us just leave single people out of our lives regarding fellowship. And that needs to not be done. We need to include them and minister to them in that way. So I encourage you, when you plan fellowships, include... One second here. I'm just going to give undivided attention to stop this thing. It means I've got 10 minutes, so we're not done yet. And I'll finish in 10 minutes. So again, it's include them in your fellowship. Include them in your lives in any way that you can. And that'll go a long way to helping these people with their struggles. And when I came into the first church I was at in Connecticut, I was a, my family was a good family. They weren't believers, but it was a loving family, a devoted family. I never doubted my parents' love for each other. If I did, it was fleeting. But the majority of my life, there was a sense 
sense of love of my mom and dad for each other, uh, their love for me, uh, love for my siblings. So it was a very, for an unbelieving family, a very good, solid family. And when I came to this church, and I was like 19 or 20, uh, you know, the families invited me to their homes. And uh, again, I, I was just a, a mess. I had long hair, smoked cigarettes. I smelled cigarette smoke, uh, wore nasty uh, Angus Young t-shirts where he stabbed himself with a guitar in the chest. Just, just not the nicest person to be around. But they invited me anyway. And for the first time, I got to see what a, a, a true Christian family was. Uh, the warmth, uh, the peace, the contentment, uh, the joy of, of, a, of a complete satisfied wife and a husband who was a leader, uh, the contentment of the children, the control of the children. And, and that brought a great desire into my heart to move forward and, and to seek a wife and, and to set up that structure myself that God would bless. So it motivates people to, to move forward in that direction, uh, to care, uh, to be concerned, uh, to think about what a Christian family is and how am I going to implement that. And I spent many hours uh, praying and reading and, and how I was going to, to structure my family. And it came from those fellowships with those families. Like when Geneva and I talked, uh, the thing that really drew us to each other is that we'd thought through all these things already by ourselves. And that came from being with these families and seeing it. So include them. They may seem like a fifth wheel. I guarantee you they will have a blast. So include singles in your fellowship. Spend time with them. Show them your love. Embrace them and encourage and help them. And, and all of us, whether we're single, we're married, we're divorced, we're widowed, just remember that, that any sacrifice that we make for the Lord will be rewarded beyond belief. We don't live for this world. Now, what Paul is trying to do here, really, is, and I guess I could have spent more time on this, but I was restricted, is try to, to push our decisions beyond this life and look into eternity and make our decisions based on what is going to happen there. That's where we're going to be, where all these structures will not exist. So live as much as you can in that age to come, and God will reward you beyond belief. The smallest effort that we make to please him, the smallest sacrifice that we make, will be rewarded beyond our comprehension and beyond our understanding. And if that's a place you're sitting here and you're not a Christian, that you've heard of these things but never actually had them, and you'd like them, you ask yourself, well, how can this become mine? How can these gifts become mine? Well, the, the scripture's clear that it is believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it's trusting in him that he is a savior who can save you, a savior who will save you, as he tells the people of Israel, if you come to me, I will no wise cast you out. The worst sinners in the world, the Pharisees, the tax gatherers, the sinners, the prostitutes, all came to him and believed in him, and all the blessings that a God could bestow were bestowed upon those people. How? By simply believing the words that he said. If that's what you believe, if that's what you want to believe but aren't quite sure, then come talk to me, talk to an elder, talk to anybody. And they'll put you in touch with somebody who can explain the gospel to you, the gospel that saves, the gospel that gives eternal life. We're I'm ministering to a man right now who's struggling with many, many sins. And we're talking about, in Romans 6, that life that, that pulses through our veins, that gives us the desire and the power to please God. That life will be yours. 
and it's granted by grace, by believing in the person of Christ, throwing aside your works and trusting wholly upon him. And I trust that you'll consider that and come and talk to anybody here about that. So I hope this has been instructed, brothers. Again, it was an easy thing to teach, uh, but I hope it's been helpful. If you have any questions, uh, feel free to come up and talk to me, and I'll be happy to answer them. But again, I hope it's been encouraging mainly to you single people, the options that you have, and, and how uh, to live in a way that pleases him within those options. I hope it's been helpful to us as a church, how we minister to those people, how we are to look upon them and help them with those gifts, with the struggles that they have. And I hope it's been helpful to whatever state we're in, uh, to stay there, to be content, not to worry about what should I do, should I change, should I divorce, should I marry, uh, should I separate. No, God is content wherever you are. He's pleased with what you do. And I hope that that's the message that comes through here, brethren, that God is content with the state we're in and, and the worry, the fear, the distress uh, should not be upon our shoulders. It's upon his shoulders. So let's pray, and then uh, we'll have Dan come up, and, or Cody come up and finish. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day you've given us. Thank you for the time, for the words. Lord, we pray you would encourage us um, and help us uh, to minister to those who are single, Father, that you would be a blessing. And uh, just show your grace to all of us, Father, as we uh, think about these things, as we consider them and uh, acknowledge them. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.